This episode is sponsored by Rulin Group. There are four gifts I've received over the years that really stood out, and the common link between all of them is each one was sourced through the Ruling Group. If you want to deliver amazing gifts that capture people's attention, go to GiversEdge.com to learn more. Hey, it's Ian Altman. On this episode of the Grow My Revenue Business Cast, I'm joined by Matt Curry. Matt and his wife, Judy, founded Curry's Automotive Service and then sold it a couple years ago to a major public company for roughly $16.5 million cash. We're going to talk about how to position a company so you can sell it for cash and not have to stick around. We'll talk about how Matt sees his attention deficit disorder or ADD as a positive, not a negative. We'll discuss what it's like to work with your spouse, who happens to also be your business partner, and some of the regrets that Matt had after selling his business, which might surprise you. You're going to learn a ton. Matt's a great guy. So here we go with Matt Curry. Matt Curry, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ian, and really honored to be on your program. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. You know what? I'm, I'm so excited for people to hear your story uh, because it's something that a lot of entrepreneurs look for in people, obviously, in many respects, are growing a business because they want to someday sell it and they don't want to be tied to the business going forward. So tell me a little bit about the history of Curry's Automotive and kind of what happened. Sure. So I think, you know, everybody's every entrepreneur's goal is to build and sell their business, or at least that kind of what it, that's kind of what it should be at some point, whether it's your generation or the next generation or whatever. Um, but I started Curry's Auto Service when I was 28 years old on $103,000 on 13 credit cards uh, in the back of a terrible industrial park. And um, we, uh, you know, our goal was to build 10 stores, okay, and to have the best auto repair shop and, and offer our customers the best automotive repair experience really in the world. And that's what we did and was, we were able to grow it. Uh, we grew it over 16 years to 10 locations. We serviced about 60,000 cars a year. Um, doing about $20 million in sales with 152 employees. And about three years ago, we sold it to a, a publicly traded billion-dollar corporation for $16.5 million. Um, but I did it because I knew the business. I'm a big believer in beginning at the beginning. Yep. So I started, you know, I started in the business when I was 15 years old, changing tires and, and um, uh, changing oil and, and mopping floors and and really worked my way up through the business and ran seven different stores for three different companies and tripled and quadrupled sales everywhere I went and then went out on my own. Yeah, and by the way, and I love this. Now, just for clarification for our listeners, when you sold the business, how long did they require you to stick around after you sold the business? One second. One second. <laughs> Which, by the way, I want people to pay attention because a lot of organizations, the CEO is in a position where the business can't run without them. And I think there's a valuable lesson here in that you and your wife, Judy, who, you know, people always refer to the other, their other, um, their, their spouse or significant other as their better half. I know you and Judy. And in this case, it's absolutely true that Judy is the better <laughs> half. <laughs> you know that to be, you know that to be a fact. That's right. And you wouldn't disagree. Nope. Um, and, and by the way, Deborah is definitely my better half. There's of no course. doubt about it. And so the, the, the issue here is how did you make it so the two of you could exit the business? So, you know, I think you have to have really rigorous policies and procedures. You know, we um, literally, when we sold the company, they wired the money and I threw them the keys and walked away. 
So it was, uh, you know, it, it was pretty actually a pretty amazing exit. But uh, the company, I mean, ran with or without me. I mean, I, we were able to leave for months at a time even. And you do that by uh, creating something that's scalable and repeatable. And you do that by having rigorous policies and procedures that are written so that even though we had 10 stores and actually 11 locations with our main office, everybody operated the same way. You know, when customer came in, they were greeted the same way. We, we took all their information the same way. We test drove the cars, you know, before and after we worked on it. So we, and we enforced and reinforced that. Like I'm a big believer in, in managing by walking around. And when I was working, I was always at the stores. I was, you know, I'm, when I, when I went to my stores and this is uh, something that's uh, kind of maybe a little different. If you want to know how your business is running, don't talk to your managers, talk to your technicians, talk to the people actually doing the work. So when I went and visited a store, I'd walk in the back and I'd talk to all the technicians first and I'd see how things were going and get their input and talk to them. Then I'd talk to the managers and then I'd talk to the customers. So I think, you know, if you keep open lines of communication with your people, you have rigorous policies and procedures that are written down and expectations of, you know, what your employees can expect of you and what you inspect, um, expect of your employees, uh, then that really goes a, a really long way to, to having a productive and efficient and really happy business. I think that's a great lesson for people to, to pick up on, which is if you can't operationalize, if you can't turn what you're doing into a repeatable process and procedure, then the business is solely dependent upon you. Now, as part of the due diligence, did the acquiring company look into things like that? Did they ask how and, and did they investigate how integral you and Judy were to the operation of the business? You know, that's an interesting question, Ian, because when they bought me, before they bought me, they told me they expected to lose 20 to 30, 25 to 30% of the business. In other words, they expected to lose five to six million dollars in revenue right off the bat because they're a big behemoth kind of, you know, they, they have 1,100 locations, they're very corporate. And, uh, you know, I, I felt that was very, very interesting, right? And, uh, and sure enough, they lost about 40% of revenues in the first 18 months. They were basically buying market share. And they didn't really want me around. When, when they bought businesses, they didn't want the owners around. They changed it to their way of doing things. And because they're a publicly traded billion-and-a-half-dollar corporation, they have certain ways of doing things because you're a smaller entrepreneur and you've got your boots on the ground and, and you're there, hopefully, you know, involved in your business. You can, uh, you know, you can pivot and you can, you can shift and change things and, and really kind of more quickly than a, than a big corporate uh, giant. So those are the advantages, really, the smaller entrepreneurs have over big businesses like that. It's funny because clearly, clearly what they did is they said, look, all of your systems and processes that have been wild, wildly successful, we're going to change those to our model. And mm -hmm. then that, in turn, caused them to lose 40% of the revenue, which I'm sure at some level they've rebuilt that in a different way, but it's still kind of funny that – that they they buy it going in knowing what's going to happen, but they still don't care. <laughs> exactly, it was really interesting to me. And you know, I mean, who was I to say they're giving me a bunch of money, so I'm not going to tell them how to run their business? But certainly, it wasn't the same as you know uh, a smaller, medium-sized business with an entrepreneur who's who's there and 
and can really shake things up and make sure that things are going the way that you want them to go. And that's, again, that's your advantage as an entrepreneur if you have a small or medium size or even a large business. Yeah. You know, it, it's not corporate. It's more, you know, I don't know, family oriented or whatever. You, 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 you tend to care about it. It's your baby, right? You can tend to care about it a little bit more. Uh, of and, course. And you can make those changes and pivots quicker than a big corporation can. Of course. And one of the things that that I want to touch on, because I, I know some of the stuff that I went through after I sold my businesses, when you look back at it now, um, what sort of regrets do you have? I mean, obviously, people look at the positive and say, wow, you got $16.5 million cash. And so it's tough to see the negative there. But what sort of regrets <laughs> do you have since selling? Well, you know, I mean, it was super exciting. It was a, a very busy and exciting time selling my business. And it was August 18th. Uh, it'll be three years this August. And, uh, you know, for the first, like, year, you're just, like, loving life and, you know, traveling and enjoying things. And, you know, now it's it's really interesting because you, you lose a sense of purpose. Like, I had 152 employees, but the way we looked at it, everybody was married and had at least one kid. So really we had 450 people that were relying on us and no longer being the man, you know, like you'd walk into a store and all that, you know, you just, you don't have that sense of purpose as much. So, um, there's some regrets there. I mean, yeah, I got paid a lot, but I really cared about the business a lot as well. And, uh, so it, it's just a matter of, you know, finding a new sense of direction, a new sense of purpose. And that's what I'm doing with my speaking and coaching and, and my book and, and all that stuff. Yeah. So I, and I want to get into the speaking and coaching. Before we do, I want to touch on the topic of the book because this is going to be something that's surprising to people, which is so you built this business with all this structure, all this process and discipline. And you're the first guy to tell people that you suffer from attention deficit disorder. In fact, wrote a book, The ADD Entrepreneur, that was a Wall Street Journal bestseller, number one on Amazon in a bazillion different categories. So talk to us a little bit about this ADD and where it hinders and candidly where it might also help in your business. Sure. Well, Ian, you know me personally, so you know you know I have ADD. Um I was medically diagnosed. Dude, let me tell you, I'm surprised <laughs> we've gotten this far in the interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was medically diagnosed with attention deficit disorder when I was 11 years old. Uh, my parents brought me up to uh, uh, Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. I went through two days of rigorous testing and evaluation, putting square pegs in round holes and the whole ink blotter test and all that stuff. And on the third day... Um, the doctors brought my parents and myself in, and there were three doctors, I'll never forget it, and the lab coats and all that. And they explained that I had um, some learning disabilities, uh, slight dyslexia, and pretty acute ADD. Now, I'm 11 years old. Basically, they're telling me that they, they said that I'd have to work two or three times harder than anybody else to have any type of success in school or in life or in business. And, you know, so they first of all, so they put their uh, prescribed a, a drug called Ritalin. I was yeah. one of the first Ritalin babies, um, as like kind of an experiment back in the seventies. And uh, so my seventh grade year, they they medicated me, and I got almost straight A's that year. But they wouldn't keep me on the Ritalin long term because they didn't have long term consequences. And I'm really glad that the doctors and my parents took me off the Ritalin because I see attention deficit disorder as my superpower, and I see it as a positive, not a negative. I mean. 
when you're 11 years old and, and you have three doctors and lab coats tell you that you're going to have to work two or three times harder to have any type of success in life, you know, how would that make you feel, right? Oh, yeah. Man, you'd be devastated. Well, I kind of was like, it was a good data point. It was like good information to have, right? And I never looked at it as a negative. I, I had this, you know, you know Yannick Silver, a good sure. friend of ours. And, you know, his deal is, you know, do you have, um, have you have always, do, have you always felt like you were destined for greatness? And I've kind of always had that confidence. And I felt like I was going to do great things. And, uh, and, and I feel I have. So I never let it get the best of me. I used, you know, the, the tendencies, the things that, you know, people see ADD as a negative, you know, I see as a positive. It gives me unbridled energy. I have energy, you know, 24 seven. Um, I can, you know, creatively problem solve. I can see, um, creative solutions where other people can't. And I can see sometimes opportunities where other people can't. So, you know, I'm blunt to the point of, you know, a fault almost. But so all these things that people, a lot of people say are negatives, I, I use them as my super, superpowers. Yeah. Well, and, and I like that. And my guess is there's a certain aspect of when your brain automatically jumps from topic to topic, then as an entrepreneur and CEO, when you're in the middle of something and someone comes in with another issue that requires your attention, you're already pre-wired to shift to that topic, deal with it, and then get back to where you were. Exactly. That's exactly right. So you can multitask at a million miles an hour. And the thing about attention deficit disorder is we thrive on chaos. Okay. So we like to make order out of chaos. So I'm not afraid of, you know, getting involved in a complicated problem and finding a simple solution because I think almost every problem is solvable. And uh, really that's where we, where we thrive. Yep. Now, I also want to ask you, and by the way, I really appreciate you sharing that because I know a lot of people suffer with all sorts of different things and will use it as an excuse. I love the fact that you see it as a positive that actually you've used as a cornerstone of success for your business. I also want to talk about working with Judy because I imagine for for a lot of businesses (laughs) that when you work with your spouse – that can introduce positives and negatives. So tell me a little bit about that experience and what it's like and how do you make, because I know you guys have an amazing relationship, and how do you make that work when you're building a business that you're selling for you know, eighteen or uh, $16 million? Well, my wife Judy is an amazing uh, person, friend, and partner, so just to put up with me, you know what I mean? Um, we've worked together for about 20 years, and she was the chief marketing officer at Curry's Auto Service, and as well as the hybrid shop. And, uh, you know, I think we work separate but together. In other words, you know, we'll say, okay, I need this, this, and this done, and I'll just kind of walk away and let her do it. When she needs input, she gets my input. The thing is, is we also work sometimes different hours. Like, my mornings always started pretty early, and she worked, she liked to work later at night. But the problem came in, like when I'd get home at work at seven or eight o'clock at night, and she'd want to talk business, and I'd just have to tell her, "Look, I'm closed. I'm yeah. closed, you know, for the day, right?" <laughs> so, um, and she knew, you know, it's kind of like having a, a code word. She knew that, you know, hey, now's not the time. You know what I mean? So, it's uh, it's great. You know, I mean, it, it's it can be tough, but it's it's also very rewarding working with your wife and spouse and friend. Yeah. Now, and you know what, and, and it's interesting. I know that one of the things that at Curry's Automotive you guys did really well was 
you had some awards in how you were tailored to female customers. And I know that in the automotive industry, oftentimes women feel really uncomfortable going to a shop for auto repair. And you managed to carve out a niche in that area that made it so that you were the go-to place for that. Yeah, we were actually certified female-friendly, um, and that was all Judy. That was all Judy's doing. And uh, you know, about 70% of the buying decisions made in any family is done by the wife. And, uh, you know, by, by talking to people instead of talking over people and, and really getting people to, um, you know, just, just relating to them how they can understand and telling people what they needed and why they needed it and just being honest and, and having uh, that type of philosophy was great for not only female customers but anybody. So, yeah, we, won, we were voted the number one auto repair shop in North America by Motor Age Magazine and Inc. 5000 three years in a row. And, and we did we, and won a lot of growth as well as philanthropy awards. And we did that by, by really just treating people the way you know, you want, you'd want to be treated and having awesome customer service and follow-up with their customers and, and just really quality, high-quality repair work. Awesome. Now, what, so, so you've got all this amazing experience. You've, you've done what a lot of people set out to do, which is build a business, replicate it, create a lot of value, and then exit it with cash. Right. So what are you doing now? Because I'm sure if you were sitting around just doing nothing, you would go nuts and Judy would <laughs> kill you. So, um, so, so what are you doing now? Well, right now, I you know obviously we, I wrote the book about a year ago and, and that was pretty successful, so it was cool. I'm trying to leverage that into speaking and coaching gigs. I've uh, I've coached three or four businesses this year, and I'm happy to say that I've got about twenty to fifty times return on their investment and uh, uh, you know two day investment. So uh, I'm really trying to get my speaking career going and doing more coaching gigs because I love to help people. And I, you know, I love to inspire people, and that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm also actually looking at doing it again. I might go open another ten auto repair shops. Who knows? <laughs> another another ten. What um, the hell? Yeah, and I'm, I'm guessing there was probably just a hunch about a three year non compete on the sale that you did. Yeah, it's four years. So, four years. All right. So, so I'm, you know. I'm looking now, and you know, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I, I, I have a strange feeling we might see you there again. So let's talk about the coaching a little bit. So, what types of businesses are you working with, and what sort of what sort of guidance are you giving them? Because obviously, you got a ton of knowledge and experience they can they can draw from. Well, any type of service um, um, business, so any type of really customer service oriented business I'll work with as long as it's a good fit. Um, this year I've done four auto repair shops so far. And what I do is uh, we, we do a kind of a SWOT analysis. We spend about 20 or 30 hours in the beginning and Judy goes through their websites and all their customer or their competitors' websites and looks at all of their marketing and their uh, social media, everything. Um, and then I look at, they send me their financials up front. I look at their financials. I look at their online reputation, everything. So before we go out there, and then I interview, I spend a couple hours interviewing the owner, and even maybe some of the employees, and then I go out there for two days, and I spend two days on site just reviewing everything from their operations, their workflow, to their financials, to their advertising, marketing, and really kind of streamline their, their entire operation and get them to do everything the way we did it, did at Curry's. And we give them, I mean, 
we give them all of the tools. We give them all of my financials. Like, you know, they have uh, boilerplate financials where they can, so they know their, the, the KPIs that they should be looking at and what their gross profit should be, what their labor costs should be. Um, we give them uh, some of our marketing material. So they, they work out of there with about a, a booklet of, and, and all the, really the, the blueprint for a franchise. And then I give them, you know, I had one client this year, his goal was to do $1.5 million next year yeah. when, I co- when I coached him in March. And by the time we we're done in, in March, his goal was to do over $2 million this year. Yeah, that's great. So, and he's on track to hit that at 2.1 million. I just talked to him last week. That's awesome. So, man. yeah. And he only did 1.3 or 1.4. So he'll have a $700,000 increase in sales for two days spending with me. That's awesome, man. I mean, that's just, that's a great thing. Now, let, let me ask you in terms of the auto industry, because I just, I just bought an electric vehicle, one of these Teslas that comes in um, shortly. What, how, how does the world of hybrid and electric change the auto service world? Well, the cafe standards um, are really driving it. It was gas prices and cafe standards. The cafe standards are every manufacturer by 2025, Ford, Toyota, Porsche, whatever, their fleet needs to average 54 and a half gallons. Okay, so whether if you have an F 150 and a Ford, you know, whatever. Festiva or whatever, their whole when you put them all together, they got to average fifty four and a half miles per gallon. The only way that they're going to achieve that is through hybrid and electric um, technology. Uh, we saw the whole scandal with with Volkswagen with their turbo diesel, and even even Volkswagen said they're going to um, they're going to launch. I think it was twenty new models by two thousand twenty or two thousand twenty five in hybrid and electric. So that's the only way they're going to achieve it. So the 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 way things are going, and you know, it's it's good because there's zero or almost zero emissions. Uh, obviously, in electric, there is zero. So it, it's it's a great technology. It's very well proven. It's been on the road since you know uh, Toyota and Honda have had hybrid vehicles out since 2002, um, and it's it's just the way the world's going. So it, how does a maintenance shop that's historically been servicing internal combustion engines? make it so that they have a clue how to deal with a vehicle that comes in that's a hybrid or electric vehicle. I mean, because i got to believe if they don't do something like that, they're going to perish in the, uh, the not-too-distant future. Yeah, long-term. So that's why we, we created the hybrid shop. So at the hybrid shop, we teach uh, – we sell franchises. We teach auto repair shops how to get into the hybrid and electric repair business. We teach them how to diagnose, service, maintain, and repair everything in a hybrid vehicle from the battery to the electric transmission to the um, normal maintenance and everything that comes with it. Uh, we also have ex- some exclusive technology that will charge or condition a hybrid battery to about 95% of its original power and energy for a third or half the price of battery replacement. So it's, wow. Yeah, it's better for the customer. It's better for the environment and all that. So, And then we give them all the marketing operations, uh, advertising and stuff that they need to really to get that. So of our 45 or so dealers, they average, you know, about 30 to $40,000 in additional sales a month, um, being a hybrid shop dealer. So, because many of these customers actually, our studies show that about 92% of hybrid electric vehicle owners go back to the dealers and they don't really want to, people want options. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, it's one of these things we're getting getting the Tesla. I mean, the good news is 
there isn't a lot of maintenance on that Tesla. I mean, the, the brakes, I think, are rated at, I think they tell you you should look at replacing them after 160,000 miles, and right. they're reporting that they're going a quarter of a million miles because of the, um, what is it, the regenerative braking that they That's use. Right. Um, and, you know, it's not like there's a whole bunch of belts on this thing or hoses. You don't need an oil change because there is no oil. <laughs> um, it's, you know, tires and alignment. And, I mean, I'm sure there's general electrical maintenance stuff or battery, whatever, but there's a lot going on in that car. No, you're right. I mean, and that's one of the beauties about having a hybrid or electric vehicle is they are lower maintenance. When things do go wrong, they're more expensive, but uh, there's not a lot of moving parts on it. So uh, it's, you know, it's really important as these things really take off and people, they become more and more uh, popular that the, the automotive aftermarket and the manufacturers keep up with you know, training their technicians on how to properly diagnose and maintain these vehicles. Yeah, cool. Hey, hey, Matt, what's the what's the biggest lesson that you've learned from either a challenge, a mistake, a regret that you've got in your business that other people can learn from? You know, uh, I think one of the biggest things is don't get don't get too cocky, don't get arrogant, and fall asleep at the wheel. I mean, there was a time when I had three stores and I was you know everything I touched turned to gold or. Our third store in Falls Church, we, we bought it for like $300,000. It was doing $30,000 a month in sales. And within 90 days, we're doing $90,000 a month. Within 18 months, we're doing about $250,000 a month in sales. And we're just rocking it. And so I was trying to find another repair shop, saying, well, you know, three is great. I want a fourth one. Well, I couldn't find anything local here in Northern Virginia because it's sometimes hard to find proper use and zoning. So I found a place in Richmond. And which is 100 miles away, as you know. And I opened a shop up in Richmond, Virginia. And, uh, you know, wasn't, it wasn't successful because it wasn't our demographic. It, you know, it didn't get the economies of scale like through advertising and such. And, uh, but I just thought everything I, everything I touched turned to gold, and, and that's not true. So when things are going really, really well, you know, just be be careful to check your ego at the door. You know what I mean? <laughs> so check your ego at the door, says Matt Curry. Right. All right. Cool. And um, and if you had one piece of advice to give an entrepreneur who wants to get to the point that you did, where they sell their business in an eight figure transaction, what's the one piece of advice you'd give people? Have a plan. Have a purpose. You know, know what you're going to do after the business. Really think about it. When somebody flashes a, a bunch of money before your eyes, it's great, okay? But, you know, it's 47 years old, as you said. I mean, I'm not ready to retire. I've got other things that I want to accomplish and other things to do. So, you know, I hope that all of your listeners have the success that I had and were able to build and sell their business for, you know, 15, 20, or $30 million, Okay. But life doesn't stop there. It moves on, and you got to be part of that equation. That's great. What's the best way? Because I know people are going to want to reach out to you. What's the best way for our audience to get a hold of you? Uh, I'd love for them to like me on Facebook. It's Matt Curry, so they can go to Facebook and search there. Or my website, adashofcurry.com, adashofcurry.com, because a dash is all you need. Yep, and it's C-U-R-R-Y. We'll have all this in the show notes for everybody and um, and I know there's a lot of great wisdom here that you shared, and um, I'm just really appreciative of you taking the time to share your story with our listeners. It's uh, been really awesome to be on your show, Ian. I appreciate you thinking about me. Cool, Matt. Thanks. All right. Thank you. 
it's cool being able to talk to Matt and get firsthand information about what it took to sell a business for $16.5 million cash. Let me give you a quick 30-second recap of the key takeaways I think you can use in your business right away. First, if you want to exit your business at some point, you need to develop policies and procedures and basically get it so you've got a scalable and repeatable process for someone else to acquire. If you're in a service business, in any business for that matter, don't go around and just talk to your managers to see how things are going. Talk to your frontline employees, talk to the people who are actually doing the operations and customers, then talk to your managers. And finally, if you're gonna position yourself to get out of your business, make sure that you've got a plan. And I love when Matt says, check your ego at the door, because sometimes we can get a little overly confident. Remember that this show gets its direction from you, the listener. If there is a guest you want me to have on the show, if there's a topic you want me to cover, drop me a note at ian at ianaltman.com. I'll reply to you personally. I'd love it if you would subscribe and share this with your friends. So subscribe on iTunes or on Stitcher. Of course, if you have any comments, you can reach me at ianaltman on Twitter or at ianaltman.com. Have an amazing week, add value, and grow revenue in a way everybody can embrace, even your customer.